an unconditional promise of healing. Under the right circumstances, the only place in the New Testament to do so. So I'm just alerting you to that because actually to come to this passage in James 5 with this predetermined focus on healing, having already decided that the passage is about healing, can distort what the passage is saying. That focus on healing actually makes us miss the important place of this passage is the climax of the book of James, where James outlines and calls for the response that can prevent and heal the wounds of the idolatrous worldliness that James is confronting in the congregation. And so this evening, we're firstly going to look at this section of James 5 in its context. Now, during that, uh, we'll touch on some of the claims made for healing by some. But the focus of the talk will be on hearing the encouragement James gives us to live all of life under God's sovereign rule by relying on his faithfulness to his word and the encouragement it gives us to live together in such a way that every one of us comes to what is promised in the gospel, life and salvation. And then after the talk, as Andrew said, we'll have a time for any questions you may have, either on James or on sickness and healing in the life of believers more generally. Uh, now, you've got an outline. I've moved some bits in the outline around, particularly the little bit about uh, sin and sickness. And if you've got a transcript, uh, it's got a significant gap in it because I never got around to typing that bit up. But don't worry, you'll notice and uh, you can just listen. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that your word is true and sure a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, we pray, especially in the confusion that some have generated uh, in relation to sickness and healing, that we would know the light of your word, that it will give us the clarity of truth. And gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we also pray that where we are tested uh, by difficulty, or where we are convicted of sin, we would know the encouragement of your word, uh, that we can turn to you for forgiveness and life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anyone among you suffering? Completely out of practice. Do you think this is working? I guess I should pray over it. <laughs> ah, good. Okay. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Here is both the prevention and the cure of the worldliness we know that has some in the congregation James is speaking to in its grasp. You know, those who we've seen make their plans without acknowledging God, who are willing to supplant God in judging others, who seek to make the congregation the vehicle of the fulfilment of their own selfish ambitions. 
in James's instruction in verse 13, you have the cure for that. And also here in verse 13, you have the source of the patient endurance that James has just called for as we await the coming of the Lord. All of life, he says, the good times and the bad are to be lived conscious, in conscious acknowledgement that the Lord is sovereign over all things. So, like the prophets of old, as we saw in verse 10 of chapter 5, you may be suffering hardship or trouble. The word that's used there for suffering can embrace all kinds of distressing circumstances from poverty and persecution to losing your job or just being exhausted in caring for others. So when we suffer trouble, how do we respond, he says? We pray. You see, believers are not fatalists or stoics. The Christian life is not one of grim resignation in the face of trials. We pray. We acknowledge that our God rules over all things. We know who is in charge. And so we pray and ask, like the psalmist. In fact, you read the psalms and you'll see that they're often asking for deliverance in trials. So Psalm 30. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit, or Psalm 31. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to me, to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge. We pray and ask for relief and deliverance. We ask for strength to persevere. We ask, as we learned in Hebrews, for mercy and grace to help in need. Oh, we cry out how long as we see in Luke 18 and pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. And as James has reminded us in chapter 1, we ask for the godly wisdom that lets us lead a godly, persevering life in trial. Our God rules over all things. We're not passive. If we're suffering, we pray. But not all of life is difficult. There are times when we feel good about life, when we're cheerful. You know those times when, say, we've brought our wife and baby home from the hospital, where you have the family around your table at peace, or you've completed your final exam and you know that you've passed, or you're experiencing the exhilaration of completing that physical challenge. Well, if that's you in those times, he says, sing songs of praise. Acknowledge your dependence on the living God who, says Paul, gives us all things to enjoy, who's the source of every good and perfect gift, as James has reminded us. You see, the flip side of saying Lord willing is thanking him, praising him when your plans succeed. And this praise is praise of God himself. It's more than just giving thanks for gifts received. It's acknowledging our God, that he's not just an errand boy to help us satisfy our wants when we ask. We praise him for who he is, almighty, the creator, the source of all life, merciful, gracious, just, kind. A habit of praise is important for feeling good. Success contests us perhaps more than trials. 
Those are the times when we're tempted to forget God, to attribute our success to ourselves, our own hard work or intelligence or ability. Oh, and sometimes we're tempted at that in those times to let the gift crowd out the giver in our affection and to come to value it more than God himself. So if you're feeling cheerful, he says, praise. Prayer and praise should embrace the whole of our life. They correct our wrong thinking about God and ourselves and sustain us in right thinking and relationship. You know that wrong thinking that says we're alone in the world. Oh, we're in charge of our lives. It's all just up to us and we get all the credit for what happens. Prayer and praise will correct us, correct us, because it reminds us that our God is living and active. He's near to all who call on him. He rules over all. And all that we have received is from his hands. As uh, it says in Chronicles, we give thee but thine own. Oh, and it reminds us that our God is good and faithful to his promises and we need to know that. So, is your life characterised by the practice of verse 13? Do you pray? Do you praise? Do you remember your God in all things? But there's one particular form of hardship that James singles out for further instruction. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Sickness, like all of life, as we've just seen in verse 13, is under our Lord's control and should, like all the rest of life, be the subject of prayer experienced within our relationship with our Lord. And as verse 14 shows, Christians do get sick. That's what's seen in the New Testament. Think of Matthew 25. I was sick and you visited me. Or Paul telling us that he left Trophimus ill at Miletus, writing to Timothy about his frequent illnesses, recording how his companion in uh, at uh, when he's writing to the Philippians how uh, Epaphroditus was so sick he nearly died. And, of course, we know some of the Thessalonians had died, as have all Christians from the time of the New Testament until today. Christians get sick. There'd be no need for this instruction if Christians didn't get sick. But how sick is the person spoken of here? Well, the answer is that he or she is very ill. They can't go to the elders, but have to call the elders to themselves. And unlike the experience of other hardship, this person isn't told to pray for themselves. The elders are to pray for them. And the word translated sick in verse 15 actually suggests the seriousness of the illness. It speaks of great weariness, even wasting away. In fact, it's used on a grave inscription. They found a grave inscription that says, when you die, uh, that's this word. So when you're worn out completely, that's the end. This person is sick, very sick. 
And some of us know that when you're very sick, it is hard to pray. It's just hard to find the energy to focus on calling out to God. We'd like to think we could, but it's just difficult. So this is someone who's confined to bed and at that time in very real danger of dying. You know, because we generally expect to get better, expect that there's going to be a treatment, we forget the seriousness of illness and especially of infectious illnesses. Oh, maybe we got a little reminder of that with Ebola, how quickly people died. But we forget, we forget how dangerous it is to be confined to bed if you don't have antibiotics for your pneumonia, treatment for your DVT, treatment for your heart failure if you're lying flat. This person is too weak to pray for themselves and so they call the elders. Notice that this is not talking about any healing crusade, recommending us that we seek some itinerant wonder worker. This is all happening in the local church. The elders, those who are entrusted with the care of souls in the congregation, who are entrusted with oversight and the teaching of God's word as we see in Timothy and Titus, they are the ones who are called. And what are they to do? Verse 15. Well, it says, that uh, verse 14, let them pray over the person, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The main thing they're meant to do is to pray. That's the main verb and that, of course, is what's picked up in verse 15, the prayer of faith. But here we see the prayers accompanied with anointing with oil, the universally available olive oil which has a range of uses in the ancient Mediterranean world and it, it still does. I, I used to work with uh, a, uh, an old lady, uh, a Greek lady who was from one of the islands and... Uh, she was telling me they used olive oil for basically everything. This was in the context of how to treat an infectious ear. She said, we just heated up the olive oil and in it went. Uh, anyhow, not, not much had changed. All right? But uh, olive oil was a common part of medical treatment, especially of wounds and bruises. We see that in the story of the Good Samaritan. He used oil and wine on the wounds of the man who was beaten up by thieves. It was also used in consecration, you know, the anointing of people set apart for the Lord. Here, as it's applied to all sicknesses, it's probably used as a reassuring sign. The sick don't just hear, they feel through their skin the concern of their fellow Christians and they also have that sense that they belong, set apart for the Lord. And all that the elders do is done in the name of the Lord. That is on the basis of Christ's authority. They make their prayer with the authority of Jesus because they're doing what Jesus calls them to. And as we'll see, they're relying on Jesus' word. And what should believers expect as the outcome of this prayer? What's promised to those who faithfully follow this instruction? Well, the prayer of faith, it says, will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. But that's the ESV. Read some translations and you'll see what is promised unconditionally is healing. This prayer made in faith will heal the sick person and the Lord will restore them to health, or the NIV. 
The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And that translation draws us into controversy and also into what you might call qualifying explanations of this unqualified promise. You see, some want to use this to support their position that if you have faith, you will be healed. Now, such a view is inevitably discouraging for the sick and it's unkind. It undermines faith, faith in Christ, where the believer needs their faith encouraged and strengthened. And, of course, it misrepresents what's said here, for it's the elders' prayer and the elders' faith that the promise concerns. And so, logically, uh, if you're sick and you have an unconditional promise and you call the elders and you're not healed, you should not you know, worry about how much faith you have. You should sack your elders and find better ones. Right? Now, uh, other people have observed that often those prayed for by godly elders don't get better. And so they then start to want to introduce uh, qualifications around the prayer of faith, and we'll look at that. But the first question is, do we have an unconditional promise of healing here? What exactly is promised? And why the differences between the translations? Uh, now, there are always difficulties in translating a word in one language into another because words can have a range of meanings and there may be no word in the receptor language that has exactly the same range of meanings and so the translator has to make a choice, has to choose a word in the receptor language that she thinks picks up the particular meaning of the word being translated from the original language in its context. Let me just, I mean, if you came to the winter teaching series, all this, you'll know all that, but let me give you two examples of what we mean by a range of meaning. Take the simple word fan, okay, simple word. It can be a ceiling fan or an upright electric fan, an unfolding paper fan or a follower of a movie star. You know, what if the sentence turn on the fan had to be translated into a language that had different words for a ceiling fan and an upright fan. Well, the translator would have to make a choice, wouldn't she, from the context. There may not be a lot of context, but the translator would still have to make a choice. And that's a simple example. What if they were confronted with the sentence, as the fan had broken, the waiting fans fanned themselves with fans made from the programs? Right? At the very least, they'd lose the alliteration. Something would be lost. Right? Or another word, green. Okay? Grass is green, and so is envy. Someone can be said to be a bit green because they're inexperienced or suffering from motion sickness. And there's always the golfing green. Words have a range of sentences, and translators have to make choices from the range of meanings a word might have in the original language as they translate into the receptor language. And that's what's going on here. The word translated by the Good News Bible as heal and the NIV as will make the sick person well is the Greek word sozo, which is often translated in other places as to save. Now, the word does have a pretty broad sense, uh, the sense of averting some danger that threatens life or the sense of preserving life or the sense of rescue. 
Now, the word sozo often has associations with the end. And remember, James in chapter 5 has already spoken of the closeness of the end. Associations with the end in the sense of final deliverance, ultimate rescue. And it also relates to the idea of well-being, the well-being of the whole person. So where the threat of life is sickness, then the sense of this word sozo overlaps with our word heal. People are being rescued from sickness with all its diminishing effects. They can be said to be sozo, saved or we might understand it as healed. And it's sometimes translated that way in the Gospel. St Mark 5.34, he says to the woman with the bleeding, your faith has saved you. Your faith, it says, has made you well. But even the Gospels, there's actually really a bigger idea in this word than just heal. Because this word speaks of the wholeness, the safety, the security that the Messiah brings and of which the healings are a sign. So some translators, thinking that it's focused on sickness, have chosen to translate the word sozo as heal. But it's actually too narrow a sense and too restricted. In the other four uses of save in James, it speaks of, and they're listed in your bulletin, it speaks of saving the soul. And we actually see that in verse 20. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save them from death, save his soul from death. The other senses. So it's used, that is, in relation to final salvation. Now, while heal is argued to fit better the local context, talking of sickness, it actually underestimates the seriousness of the sickness and the wonder of what the prayer of faith brings in this context. So I think it's better to translate it here as the ESV has as saved, to be open to that richer sense. What about the other word translated here, the word that's uh, translated here, raise him up in the Good News Bible, uh, just repeats itself, will restore him to health, and then in the NIV will raise him up. Uh, <coughs> sometimes that verb can mean get up, wake, rouse, you know, as in getting up from bed. But in the letters of the New Testament, in the letters, in all but one instance, Philippians 1.17, this word is used of raising the dead. So what's the verse saying? Well, I think it's better to read it like the ESV. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. It promises the sick believer more, much more than healing. Here is an assurance that God will keep his gospel promise. But before we expand on that, let's think about this phrase, the prayer of faith and the mention of forgiveness of sins. You see, because it's plain that not all who are prayed for by their elders get better, and remember all Christians die, a, a glaring, but, you know, just a glaring fact, some qualify this promise by making the prayer of faith a special prayer that comes from a special faith. You see, they rightly say that health and sickness are always subject to the Lord's will and we always, if we're obedient, pray, not my will but your will be done. So they say here that we have a situation where the elders know the person is to get better. 
That is, they have a special spirit-given conviction that it's the Lord's will the person gets better. And so they pray with confidence in that conviction and the person will get better. Now that sometimes happens. People do get a special conviction that somebody should be healed. And of course it rightly draws attention again to the fact that it's the elder's faith that's involved. But that's not the required sense. And in fact, this understanding is, is probably only developed because this is read as an unconditional promise of healing and they need an explanation for why all those prayed for don't get better. I think it's better to understand faith here as the faith that is in and proceeds from the gospel, Christian faith. Our faith is always in God through believing the promises Jesus the Son makes us in the Gospels. Faith's certainty and conviction comes from the faithfulness and the might of the God who makes us promises in the Gospel of his Son. What the Gospel promises so clearly and wonderfully to those who trust Jesus, who embrace the faith, is what we read of here. Forgiveness and resurrection so that we come to enjoy God's great salvation, the new heaven and the earth, when all things are made safe, all things are made whole. It's this gospel that elders are charged with teaching and defending and it is this gospel they minister now to the sick in their visit and their prayers. And you see here it's accompanied by the assurance and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now this is a wonderful assurance. It's not an afterthought. You see, they say if here because they're not seeking to draw the link between sin and sickness too tightly. Uh, you look at the references and you'll see some sickness is associated with sin. 1 Corinthians 11 say, but not all sickness. John 9, who sinned, this man or his father? Neither, says our Lord. But we all do sin. <coughs> and sometimes those sins we have committed in the past can torment us, afflict us with a lingering guilt, make us uncertain about the reception we will receive from God. Here, in the visit and prayer of the elders to this very sick person, in the visit and prayer of the elders who minister the gospel, is this strong assurance of forgiveness to the one afflicted, even to their end, with that consciousness of the sins that they've committed in the past and which continue, in a sense, to plague them, and that, that sense of guilt. So what is James saying here? What's he promising? Well, he's saying all of life, is to be lived in relationship with our God, acknowledging that he is Lord, and that includes our sicknesses. And when we're seriously ill, when we have the strength or the energy to pray, we should embrace the comfort and encouragement he has provided in the community of faith, the community of his people. Call his people, call the elders. Let them come and minister the gospel promise. Let them come and pray with conviction for God to do what he has clearly promised to do for all who trust him, 
that he will certainly do for all who trust him. And that's raise them up with Jesus to the new heaven and earth, save them and to forgive their sins. This is great assurance to those facing death before our Lord's return, a return the readers of James are very conscious of. Remember last week, the coming of the Lord is near, the judge is at the door. This is great assurance for them that they won't miss out. This is great assurance to those plagued by that lingering guilt of resurrection and forgiveness. Oh, and it's great assurance where a community or some of them may see like Job's friends sickness as a judgment. No, God will be faithful to his promises. And it also tells us that Christian communities and especially Christian leadership must make sure that no one dies alone and none die unassured. So believers should come and pray with confidence for the gospel promises assured. And we should make, all, make sure sick believers, even especially when they are unable to join our gathering, are still included in our care and community. And that's really important because it doesn't always happen. Some people are uncomfortable with death. People who say are in weeks in palliative care, their friends kind of just drop away. It becomes too hard or too inconvenient, and it can be hard, to visit. And there's always, in a sense, a temptation to withdraw. And sometimes there may be fear of infection. Actually, if, if you, you have that fear, think of what it meant for the elders James is addressing. You know, we saw with the Ebola outbreak just how dangerous infectious diseases are. And yet James still gives this instruction. The elders are to visit and administer the gospel. We have to love those who are so sick that they can't join us. We have to visit and we have to minister the gospel promise. And what about us when we get sick? You know, should we, first of all, we got a cold. Should we call the elders? No. Okay. And this isn't exclusive. It doesn't say get sick. You saw a little bit on that, on that clip. You know, get sick and if you have enough faith, it'll be faithless to go to the doctor. Get sick, have enough faith, you'll get better. He doesn't say that. When we get sick, we should use doctors. They are actually God's provision in his kindness, not just to us, but to all humanity. God is the revealer of true knowledge. So we get sick, we should use what he's provided. But like all hardship, we should pray for everything is subject to him. We mustn't neglect prayer because we're so confident that the doctor can fix it because that would be worldly, the very thing James is trying to correct. You know, suggesting that there's some sphere of life where you don't need God. No, we should recognise that God is the source of all good things, including healing and health through whatever means it comes 
and pray first and then use the means God has provided and give thanks to God when you get better because he has healed you. Oh, and yes, in all things, we ought to make sure the gospel promises are known and ministered with confidence. Therefore, writes James, therefore, an interesting therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Now why the therefore? Is it because he's still running on the theme of sickness? Well, no, I don't think that is the case. I think what's happening is this. James has just reminded us of what is at stake in being a Christian. It's actually being saved. It's actually rising up at the last day. It's actually being forgiven. James actually works on a very serious level. So having reminded us of what's at stake in being a Christian, James now moves at the end of the letter to address what's a sensitive and urgent topic for the people he's speaking to, one that really is very pertinent to them, in fact, absolutely necessary if they are going to be a healthy congregation of the Lord's people. And that, that's the question, you know, what do I do if God has convicted me that I have wronged someone? What do I do if I've brought malaise, unwellness into my own Christian life and that of the congregation by sinning against a brother or a sister? And remember in the Old Testament, sin can be spoken of as in a sense that sickness and its effects in those terms. Now to see how necessary it is, this instruction is, think about the sins James has been addressing through this book that are present in the lives of the people he's speaking to. They're in the outline, but there's partiality that can drive the poor away. There's been an empty faith which has been rebuked, an empty faith that's actually seen indifference to the, in indifference to the needs of others. Be warm, be filled. There's destructive tongues that run people down. There's a selfish wisdom that looks to promote its own interests and envies the successes of others. There's that combative worldliness that envies and fights. There's slander, arrogance, grumbling. And I guess you could add to that the anger he's spoken about in chapter 1. Now all involve wronging a brother or sister and all are destructive destructive of individuals and destructive of congregational peace and unity. And all, if they were unaddressed, would make this group that he's speaking to unrecognisable as a community of Jesus' people because they've got to be distinguished by their love for one another. You see, the sins that James has been talking about are really serious. Just recall some of the things he said. Faith without works is... Dead. Not just ill, dead. No, no power to save. Oh, judgment will be without mercy for those who show no mercy. Don't you know that those who make themselves friends of the world are enemies of God? Now we just shrug our shoulders at that point. But actually this is pretty serious, isn't it? Dead? 
without mercy, God's enemies. So what to do? What are they to do where they've been convicted by what James has written? He tells us, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. He's saying to them, deal with your sin now. Don't leave it to your deathbed. Sort out your uneasy conscience while you can. And that means taking it up with the person concerned. That's right, writing things with the person you've wronged. You see, this confession, this, this, the confession he's speaking of is not some kind of general confession, the, the kind we often have at the beginning of our services. That's helpful because it reminds us we're sinners and we need grace, but that's not what he's talking about. Confess your sins to one another. And he's definitely not talking about group sessions where you all sit around and you talk how sinful you are because they're so easily misused to manipulate people and enforce, you know, group standards. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about confessing to your mentor or spiritual advisor or to some accountability group. That's just a way to get sympathy, really, and seduce them uh, with an idea that you are sharing intimate secrets. Right? He's not talking about saying sorrowfully to a friend, you are so sad, you are such a bad person. He's actually talking about confessing to the one you have wronged. John Stott writes this, Confession must be made to the person against whom we have sinned and from whom we need and desire to receive forgiveness. There's a secret confession to God because there are secret sins committed against God alone. Next, there's private confession because some of our sins are committed against man as well as God, a private individual or two or three such and must be confessed to the offended party. Thirdly, there is public confession because some sins are committed against a group, a community or congregation and they must be confessed publicly. But confession is to the person you have wronged. And confession is important, it's helpful and it is necessary for healing. Now, you mustn't misuse this as a, a right to confess. You know, this person whom I've wronged has to listen to my confession, especially where there's fear of further abuse, where there's been abuse, and your confession is making them live it all over again. That's not a repentant mind. But this confession always involves repentance, and what it is looking for is forgiveness. So confession is not saying, sorry, I hurt you. You know, I, I really meant good, uh, but you're, you know, such a twisted, weak person that you misunderstood that and it's really your fault, but I'm sorry I hurt you. Right? And confession, you know, it, it, it's not saying, I didn't mean to. Confession is saying, I did wrong. I sinned against you. I was wrong to gossip about you. I was wrong to steal from you. I was wrong to lie to you. 
confession involves repentance. It involves saying, I was wrong. It always has to involve repentance because if you were to say to somebody, oh, you know, I was wrong to thump you, <laughs> but I'm actually going to keep doing it because I enjoyed it so much, that's a threat. Okay? That's not confession. Right. Now, confession is hard. It's hard to give, to make, and it's hard to receive. But this is the way God's word says we heal wounds in our congregational life. And so you have to work out whether you are a justified sinner, saved and secured by grace, or someone who wants to maintain appearances and self-esteem through the approval and opinion of others. But only, only one gives life. Confession is hard to make and confession is hard to accept because it must be met by forgiveness. And sometimes it's hard to forgive. And forgiveness restores and heals. Lots of sins in the congregation James is addressing destructive sins. Can you imagine how wounded you feel if you were the poor person who was told, go and sit there, and your needs were neglected? You'd be furious and you'd think they were just hypocrites, wouldn't you? Could you imagine what it would be like to be constantly run down, people judging your actions and criticising you, and for them to come and say, I was wrong, forgive me. But they are to forgive. And because it's no small thing to restore estranged relationships, and it's actually one of the hardest things in the Christian life, but one of the most necessary, James adds, a great promise. The prayer of a righteous person. He's told them to pray, pray for each other. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as to its working. Prayer for grace to forgive. Oh yes, and prayer that others would seek forgiveness. Now who is a righteous person? Well we've actually been told already, haven't we? Back in James chapter 2, a righteous person is an Abraham or a Rahab. Somebody who believes and acts, who have the living faith that heeds God's commands, that's committed to doing God's will that conforms life to the reality that Jesus is Lord and Saviour. And so a righteous person is committed to God's will in prayer. They won't pursue their own agenda, so this isn't giving you a blank cheque. They won't think things that don't please God. And they'll be committed to the Lord's will in reconciliation. And that means that they know that they have to be a forgiving and reconciled people. Remember what our Lord said, if you don't forgive the sins of others, God won't forgive you. If you're praying, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you've got to be reconciled. They'll be committed to the Lord's will. The prayer of a righteous person will forgive as they pray, as the Lord commands. But it is hard, so it gives an even greater encouragement of the power 
of seeking God's will, of praying according to his instruction. He says, Elijah was a man of like nature of ourselves and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Of like nature of ourselves, we know about Elijah. If you read 1 Kings 17 onwards, yeah, you know the story. Had to be fed, had an appetite, had to be looked after, but especially he was somebody who knew weakness and exhaustion in his service of God. But he's also a great covenant figure, a great prayer. He prayed for the boy who died and he rose. We're not exactly told in Scripture that he prayed that it might not rain, but it's assumed. Oh, in the beginning of 1 Kings 18, God says that he is going to send rain and then, as you heard, Elijah prayed for rain. But why Elijah? What's really significant? Well, like James, Elijah was zealous for God. He was jealous for God's place in Israel, God's place amongst his people, just as James has been zealous for God's place amongst his people, that he be God and acknowledged to be their God amongst them and they conform their life to his will. Now we see uh, Elijah's concern in that brief prayer you heard in 1 Kings 18. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. He wanted to be God. He wanted God to be exalted as God amongst his people. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So, Elijah is a man who wanted God to be God amongst his people like James. And Elijah's prayer that it wouldn't rain and that it would rain, not something he thought up in his own head. These are both the curse and the blessing of God's covenant with his people. God, with you see that in the references, God withholding rain is something that God said he would do if his people turned away from him. God giving rain is something that God said he would do if his people trusted him. So Elijah's prayers are in line with God's revealed will. He's actually praying that what that God would do, what he had committed himself already to do. And so his prayer is a confident prayer because it's based on what God had said. And praying confidently that God would do what he said, what he promised to do, both in judgment and blessing, Elijah was used by God to bring Israel back from apostasy. Now, we tend to minimise the danger that is confronting the congregation James is speaking to. But we shouldn't. James chapter 4, he said that God is jealous for the affection of his people. 
He wants God, the Lord, to be honoured amongst his people. Like Elijah. And Elijah's prayer was bold, simple and effective. And so our prayer should be bold and simple where we are calling on God to do what God has said he will do. And what has God said he will do? He will forgive the repentant. He will forgive those who turn back to him. He will restore them. And so we should be praying for that and praying for grace to share in that by forgiving. But of course this is a great promise and so we should be praying for more, praying for labourers into the harvest, praying that God would save because he desires the salvation of all. And having given them the encouragement, James comes to what may seem to us as a strange ending if we are used to the epistles of St Paul. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you hear what James is saying? This is actually the main game. This is the climax of the letter because James is actually saying to us, do for others what I have done for you. That's what James has been doing in the letter, hasn't he? He has been confronting with them, them with their sin. He has been convicting them of their sin and he has been calling them back to God. And so he's saying to his first hearers and to us, Share in that work. Oh, it, it may be difficult. Now, there's may be some unpleasant conversations when you confront somebody about their selfish ambition. When you seek, say, to correct their harping criticism, they may be conversations that are uncomfortable for us. But look at the great outcome. Save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There can be no greater outcome. The person who turns back to God will not suffer eternal punishment. And he adds that phrase, will we'll cover a multitude of sins because it, it reassures you that you don't have to worry that the person you are talking to has exhausted God's mercy. God can forgive and restore them, like David. He enumerated a few sins, didn't he? Adultery, murder, lying, dishonouring God's name. God restored him forgave him. What's that worth to bring someone to eternal life? Is it worth an anxious night as you play that conversation out in your head? Is it worth the risk of losing a friendship? Is it worth being thought rude? Is it worth feeling awkward in a conversation? Well, yes, hopefully if you know 
God's grace. If you know that you are saved by trusting Jesus and living his way, then you'll say, yes, it's worth all those things. And I will do it. And notice this. Notice the graciousness of this promise. If somebody's wandered from the truth, this is somebody like David who has known what is right. They've had the instruction. They've had the encouragement. They've been included amongst God's people and then they've gone against it. Not somebody who's acted in ignorance. James is saying that that person can be restored by God. That repentance will bring them life. Now just hear that. You might think that sinning brother and sister is too deep in sin, too much enmeshed with the world, too much in love with, say, money or power. To be brought back. James says that God can forgive them and restore them. See, James is often thought of as a confronting book, isn't it? But actually, this note he ends on is tells us what the book is about, actually. This has been the gracious God calling us, his people, back to himself. We ought to heed that call. You know, we ought to give up being double-minded, loving the world and trying to love God at the same time. We ought to be all in as, God, as James has called for us to be for God. And more, we ought to embrace that graciousness, come to desire what God desires for his people, that they actually be his, that they be characterised by the wisdom which is from above that they live by the royal law, the law of love, that they endure patiently because they know God is faithful. We ought to seek it. We ought to seek it in our words. We ought to seek it in our prayers and do it because we are confident in this gracious God who calls us to call others to turn back to himself. Well, there you have the conclusion of James. A reminder, isn't it, that all of life is to be lived in conscious dependence on God, that in sickness, the end of life, we can encourage confidence in the gospel, encourage confidence in the gospel and in its promises, that if we've wronged others and wounded the congregation, we should act, act to heal by confessing our sins and by forgiving those who have wronged us. And yes, we ought to work hard together to make sure that all of us don't wander from the truth, abide in the truth. But where we see somebody wandering, don't leave it to others, don't leave it to the pastors. You have a good and gracious and glorious promise. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him or her back, well you ought to know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. 
That is just extraordinary, isn't it? And cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and not then forget, but to hear and act. Help us to live as people who know that you are Lord of all our life and in trial to turn to you and in good times to thank you. Help us to live as people who are serious about sin and don't leave it to fester, but convicted by your word, confess it to one another and to forgive. And gracious Heavenly Father, help us to be people who so love our brothers and sisters that we would put ourselves out where we see them straying to bring them back to the truth. And in all this we pray that we would become a people amongst whom our Lord Jesus reigns by his word and through whom he is honoured in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now through an entire lack of self-control I've probably exhausted you and run out of all questions but I've just warmed up. I'm really looking forward to it. So if you've got any questions about sickness, healing, about James, he'll answer the questions about James. I'll look at sickness and healing. So I have exhausted them, Andrew. We get to go home early, I think. Uh, no, we did give people the opportunity to text Neil. They probably did that at the start when they thought the end was in sight. <laughs> They're regretting it now. Um, no, we're going to start with a couple on uh, maybe just some of the, the words and the semantics of it. So, for example, you define sickness quite thoroughly. And we just wanted to clarify, is the word sickness, uh, that is the idea of talking about someone that's seriously unwell or even bedridden, the common way that uh, sickness is used in the Bible? Well, there are a number of different words uh, for sickness. So there's... Uh, the word that's used in verse uh, 14, uh, which is related to asthenio, from which we kind of get a notion of weakness. And that's what's interesting about verse 15, because it uses a quite distinctive and rarely used uh, word, kemnonta uh, um, here. Uh, so it has this nuance and this overlap. It's quite unusual uh, in the sense being found on the grave inscription. So, for example, in the Gospels where it says, like, the sick are coming to Jesus, we're talking about a different word altogether. Uh, well, not carrying complete concordance in my head. So, uh, when they are bringing to him... Uh, uh, and... and um, those suffering that well um, uh, uh, that's just so there are summaries in the gospel I'm just trying to find one of them you can find one too because sometimes they're more specific. They talk about the various kinds of sickness, whether people are lame, whether they're moonstruck, 
whether they have a withered hand or limb. So there are lots of ways of describing sickness so and illness. Yeah, yeah, that's the only other reference to anointing uh, with oil. Uh, and that's another word, arostois. So, so they're actually like our, uh, like English. There are lots of words for being sick and ill. All right. Uh, let's clarify then. So, when, if we aren't to call the elders for a cold, I imagine that makes the elders very busy. No, very cross. Um, when do we call the elders? And this question specifically clarifies. Perhaps uh, instead of say visiting the GP or even calling an. I'm trying to grapple with that. Call the well, maybe, maybe let's, let's call, call the ambulance. We will come and visit you in hospital if you make it. Uh, <laughs> let me say, uh, much better to have your life sorted out with God before. That's 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 what you have to remember about the ambulance. So so don't even dream of it. Okay, God has uh, given us means in His graciousness to restore Him. He's given us understanding and knowledge. But if you think, uh, and I think this is the point of James 5, uh, if you think your life is drawing to an end, you know, if it's seriously ill, then you should call the elders and let them come and talk to you about the gospel and pray with and for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But no, see, it's not... It's not... Calling the elders is not an alternate medical solution, right? It's something about enjoying the promises of the gospel and being reassured in life or death that Jesus will keep his promise to you. And that's actually really important. So he's not suggesting, and, and never is it suggesting, uh, that these things are some alternative to seeking medical treatment. Uh, all right, let's clarify a few about praying for sick, uh, when you're sick. Is it appropriate? Should we be praying for physical healing when we're sick? Of course it would be faithless not to. All good things come from God. Uh, but And health is a good thing, a very good thing. But you should pray, unless you actually have insight into God's will, you should pray, not my will but yours be done. You may have a purpose for that sickness in your life which may not be known to you and only become apparent later. Yeah. It isn't God's will, this is going to sound, that you are always well, just like it's not God's will that you are always prosperous. Think about Jesus. He died poor. Think about Paul. He was sick. Timothy, frequent illnesses. You don't know how your loving Heavenly Father will best glorify himself in your life as you trust him. But he does. And as that's your goal, if you're his child, like Jesus, you want his glory, then you'll trust him. Yeah, you'll say, I want to be better because that's the prayer of your heart. Just like Jesus said he'd rather not drink that cup. But then you'll pray, not my will but yours be done. Because that's the prayer Jesus has taught every one of his followers to pray. We breeze over it. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, 
your will be done. That's the prayer of the disciples' heart every day. And when you're praying, your will be done, you're not thinking, oh, your great plan, Lord, oh, you know, your great plan that's unknown to me, oh, let it be realised. No, you're actually saying, not my will. Your will be done in my life. Help me to die to myself today. So, yeah, when you're sick, of course, you're not going to be faithless. That's the very thing, James, is against, you know, this worldliness that lives as if God's not real and not involved and isn't the source of all your good. So when you're sick, you'll pray and you'll tell him what's on your heart because why would you try and do something else because he already knows? And then you'll say, not my will, but yours be done. And trust him. Yeah. So as we do that, can we, should we ever expect miraculous healing without human medical intervention? Uh, what? It's the premise of the question that, in a sense, you are more healed if it happens miraculously than if God uses somebody who has trained for many years to make you better. I think it's it's that premise. Who cares? Oh, this sounds dreadful. But who cares how God heals you? He is healing you, whether it's by the surgeon's knife or whether whether it's it's by the prayer of your Christian brothers and sisters without that intervention, right? He heals you. Now, he might sometimes do that, but it's very rare. And let me say, in this society, if you expect him to do that without going to see a doctor, God in his graciousness rarely rewards your stupidity, okay? He doesn't. If you ask him for, you know, you know, it says if you ask him for a fish, he won't give you a serpent. If you ask him for a serpent... Praise the Lord, rarely does he give it to you. Okay, you're just putting him to the test. And we know from Matthew 4 that that is not a good path to go down. It's just stubborn. All right, we have many more, but I think we'll... we'll no, crack on, I'm, I'm up to it. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, <laughs> um, broken sleep. Uh, Perhaps uh, a general comment on uh, engaging with Christians who probably don't agree on this. So maybe firstly, when sickness in our lives is called uh, sin by others, so at that direct correlation, I'm sick and the, the Christian says to me, that's the first one. And the second is maybe engaging with other Christians who maybe are fully sold out on what we saw in the video. Yeah, you should watch the video, it's great. Okay, so let's say you're, you're dealing with somebody who reckons you're sick because you've sinned. Now let me say, that may be the case. Because sometimes, this is why 1 Corinthians 11, many of you are sick and some of you have died. Mind you, you probably need prophetic revelation to know that, uh, rarely. Or it may be <laughs> because you have done something really stupid. You know, you've got drunk and fallen through the plate glass window and your wounds have got infected. You are sick because you sinned, okay? But God is perhaps chastising you to help you learn wisdom. But you are a forgiven sinner if you trust the Lord Jesus. And that's the problem. You see, they're often saying, you've got this sin, right? That 
that you're not dealt with? Well, yeah, if, if any sickness, let me say, is a time to reflect on how your life is and how you're going and whether there is sin. But they're actually suggesting that you are somehow unforgiven. That is not helpful. You experience sickness, if you're a believer, as a forgiven sinner, someone who is God's child. And we know, so unless you really trust I've got prophetic inspiration, or unless independently God has convicted you of your, you know, saying you've done wrong, <coughs> don't buy it. Take them to John 9. Take them to the book of Job and remind them that that is exactly what Job's comfort has said. Bad things are happening to you because you've been bad. And actually, you read the book and you know it's exactly the opposite. Bad things are happening to you because you've been good. Sounds a bit tough, but uh, God worked it out. So, so yeah, you just don't take it for granted. Uh, and quickly, uh, to finish... Quickly. Engaging... And always an optimist. <laughs> yes. Uh, Engaging with um, people we know, Christian, oh, who look, are persuaded. Well, you should always, it says you should always gently correct those you disagree with. But you should not entertain their errors one iota. Okay, error one. The gospel has to be accompanied by signs and wonders to be powerful. Oh, that is just rubbish. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the gospel that's the power of God. Right, error two, and they point this out. Error two, oh, if you're preaching the gospel of Jesus, you should be doing the signs of Jesus. <coughs> now, uh, that video will point out that they have a completely wrong Christology. That is, they are saying really that Jesus is just a spirit-empowered man and you can be exactly like him because you have the same spirit and so you should be able to do exactly what he has done. Now, if you've read your New Testament, actually if you come to Christmas, God with us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Brothers and sisters, that is not true of you. And those signs, so, so they bad Christology. Right, and then a complete misunderstanding of the purpose of the miracles. And uh, the video, I'll bring it out, the classic passage is Mark 1. Right, Jesus heals many. He goes out to the Gospel and prays. And they come and they say, oh, look, everybody's lining up to get healed. Right? We could make a lot of money here. Right? They didn't say that. That was just, I'll put that in. But, you know, Benny Hinn lives well. Right. So does Kenneth Copeland. <coughs> and they'll go and face judgment for it too. Okay? But Jesus says this. He says, everyone's looking for you. They say, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. Jesus did not come to love people by healing them. I just want to bring a blessing from God. He came to preach the gospel that says, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right, John 5. There are lots of people gathered around the pool of Siloam. He heals 
one. The purpose of these miracles, these are to be signs. They point to who Jesus is. They point to the nature of the kingdom that he is bring, brings. They're done once. They're not there to be repeated. And the signs of the apostles are just that, signs of apostles attesting the reality of the gospel. And since that time, for most of time, God has been content to let his people get sick and die. Oh yeah, and content that his people should show love to one another in visiting them in their sickness. Remember Matthew 25, did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. You did it to me. He didn't say you came and you healed me. He said you came and you visited me. You're kind. You looked after me. You weren't afraid and fearful of what I've got. You cared. You loved. So, so yeah, be kind, be gentle, pray for their salvation because they may well destroy their faith because this is how it goes, right? If you've got enough faith, you'll get well. Well, believe it or not, no matter what they believe, they are going to get sick. One day they will get sick, right? They're going to pray, they're going to get healed, and they won't. Now, what's the solution? Because God's promising they're going to heal. God failed in his promise. Preacher wrong? No, must be me. I've got enough. I don't have enough faith. Don't have enough faith. Well, look, if you don't have enough faith to get healed of, you know, your heart failure or whatever it is, why do you think you've got enough faith to get risen from the dead? Which is harder? You just embraced a spiral that will destroy your faith. So pray for them that they'll come to love the truth. Oh, they might believe that, you know, as you heard uh, Mrs Copeland say, I can't remember her name, and uh, yeah. Um, yeah, just remember the flu shot you get from your doctor will be better. Okay, the uh, right because God gave us doctors to give us flu shots. He didn't send the sun to give us flu shots. Right, send them to save us. Anyhow, is just a, 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 right? They'll say healings in the atonement. He himself bore our sins. You know, by his wounds we've been healed. Now that started with a bloke called Simpson as part of the Christian Missionary Alliance thing. He, by the way, died of a stroke. And I just remember that everybody who's ever embraced this teaching dead. Or will soon be. Right? Okay? That's just that's the way it's going to go. Right? Now, in a sense, healing is in the atonement, and you will experience it at the resurrection. And until then, God's content to let you get sick sometimes. Sometimes get better, but in the end you'll die. Okay, so so just don't get sucked in by any of their errors or any suggestion that you know they've got a more vital, energetic faith. You just keep preaching the gospel and loving people. Okay, what was the question? I forgot. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It was the last question. Um, Man, I'm just. Yes, you're fired up now, but I'm going to end the service before the sun uh, comes up.